Hello and welcome again to another edition of Mormon Matters Podcast, our weekly romp through all things Mormon, including current events, politics, popular culture, and occasionally maybe a little bit of spirituality thrown in, but I'm not promising anything. My name is John DeLynn. I'm your host. And today we have three very special distinguished guests with us. Our first guest is Ann Porter. She is a software developer and a married mother of three. She's a convert of over 20 years who has an ambivalent relationship with church history. She writes for the Mormon-themed blog, The Cultural Hall, and is also guest blogging at various stages of Mormondom or Mormonism. And thank you very much for coming on Mormon Matters. I'm delighted to be here again, John. John Hamer is executive director of the John Whitmer Historical Association. John's a cultural Mormon and an independent researcher, historian, and mapmaker. He's currently co-editing a book called Scattering of the Saints, Schisms Within Mormonism, due out this September. John Hamer, welcome to Mormon Matters. Hi, John. Thanks. And Jay Nelson Seawright is an assistant professor of political science at a university in the Chicago area. Um, He's also an amateur Mormon studies enthusiast. Jay writes about Mormon themes online at the website www.buycommonconsent.com, where he is not busy doing the work He's actually paid to do. Jay, welcome to Mormon Matters. Always happy to be here, John. All right. Well, today we have a pretty full show. It's a little bit late in the evening for a few of you, so we need to get cracking. Um, I guess it. I guess we decided that there. Uh, well, the first thing I should just let you guys know is that we have passed a very important milestone. Do you guys want to hear what that is? Sure. Sure. Let us know. We have passed the Margie test. Do you guys have any idea what the Margie test is? Your wife likes us? Yes. So get, <laughs> so get this. It's, uh, it's Saturday, and uh, I just am excited about the, the recent Mitt Romney episode that we did. And so I, um, I play it while I'm washing the dishes. And my kids and my wife perk up, and they start listening. And before I know it, my wife Margie is asking me to get her a copy of Mormon Matters on her iPod. And not only did she want a copy of, of uh, the second episode, but after she listened to it, she was very eager to get the first episode as well. So if my wife likes Mormon Matters, I think we have a future. Well, good. So it wasn't just the animal magnetism of Ronan Head. Well, I think the British accent actually did help, frankly. Made my knees weak. But you guys, <laughs> but you guys carried the first episode, so I think, I think we have a good future in store anyway. Enough of that uh, navel-gazing, as they say. Um, Today, most of our uh, episode is going to be dedicated to the Mountain Meadows Massacre because it's heavily in the news. But before we begin, and following on the last episode dealing with Mitt Romney, uh, it sounds like there was a very interesting article printed in the Boston Globe. So I just, uh, Jay, why don't you tell us what, what we found out today? All right. The Boston Globe is running a week-long series focusing on different aspects of Romney's you know, political and personal history. Today, what was published was a letter that um, George Romney, his father, received in 1964 from a Mormon apostle, Delbert L. Stapley. And this was a private letter from Stapley to Romney, who was the governor in Michigan at the time. Jay, was but he, was it he, is was, written. 
Jay, was he an apostle or was he a 70? He was a 70. The letter heading calls him an apostle. That's a mistake. Okay. That's a mistake yeah. that the Globes... Sorry, I was following okay. them. I got burned. Go ahead. <laughs> but um, this is a private letter written from Stapley to Romney, but it is written on church letterhead and, in fact, written on Council of the Twelve letterhead. Uh, the letter addresses the issue of civil rights. In it, uh, Stapley encourages Romney in, in heavily theological terms to reduce his support for civil rights. Let me give you one or two of these sort of leading quotes here. When I reflect upon the prophet's statements and remember what happened to three of our nation's presidents who were very active in the Negro cause, I am sobered by their demise. Mm. And... Um, Ominous. Yeah, it's, it's uh, serious. And, you know, he, he also talks about a personal friend of his who um, met a tragic end due to drowning and implies that that was because of his advocacy for, for black civil rights. So who are the presidents? He, are, are we talking John F. Kennedy? Who else? John F. Kennedy, Abraham Lincoln, and I'm not actually sure who the third would be. I mean, would it be, this would have been, when was this letter written again? This was written in 1964. So it wouldn't be Bobby Kennedy as a candidate. No, he said there were three presidents. Yeah. I, I'm not sure who, who the third one is. I don't know who the third so God, So God strikes down those who fight for black civil, civil rights? rights? Yes. Well, towards the end of the letter, Stapley adds, um, I don't think I'm against the Negro people because I have several in my employ. We must understand and recognize their status and then accordingly provide for them. I just don't think we can get around the Lord's position in relation to the Negro without punishment for our acts. Going contrary to that which he's revealed, the Lord will not permit his purposes to be frustrated by man. You know, for, for me, this is, a, this is actually a great testimony to the fact, you know, there are always conspiracists who think that the brethren really don't believe uh, a lot of the core Mormon doctrine. And, and, and it's just some big sort of wizard behind the, the curtain thing. But things like this are always a big testimony to me that the brethren really are sincere. Because there is that Brigham Young quote in, in the Journal of Discourses where it says the Lord intended blacks and whites to be separate, and, and we shouldn't toy with that. And it, it's got to be that he's simply reading the Journal of Discourses, seeing Brigham Young's commentary on segregation, and saying that it's divinely mandated. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, I mean, there's, there's no sense whatsoever that, that Stapley's letter is insincere. The thing that I think is interesting, that obviously what the Boston Globe is trying to do with this is show that the Mormon Church, the LDS Church, has a history of intervening in these political things and telling Mormon political leaders what they ought to do. And from that point of view, it's interesting that the Boston Globe's printing of this letter specifically notes that in the months after receiving this, George Romney stepped up his support for civil rights. So that's something that may actually play well for Mitt Romney. Well, that was something that I, I was always hoping Mitt Romney would do. I was sort of secretly looking forward to him maintaining his pro-choice his his pro-choice stance and maybe his sort of semi-support of gay marriage and stuff just because i thought it'd be really cool to have a mormon who didn't sort of mm -hmm. walk in lockstep with with traditional perceptions about mormons mm -hmm. that was one thing well if you're going to show that that the ecclesiastics aren't calling the shots and you're a a, a free shooter then it, in, the, in the same way that only Nixon can go to China, you know, it, it's, it's a lot easier for somebody like Harry Reid to establish himself as an independent person than it is for somebody who's lockstep with what the leadership would be counseling him to do in the first place. Yeah. Sure. 
Well, that's uh, that's fascinating stuff. Um, that's fascinating stuff, Jay. Any thoughts from you, Anne, before we move on? Um, well, I just had a... Did you say, Jay, that this is uh, first of a five-part series? They're, yeah, all week they're going to be running different things. Um, I'm not sure. You know, it's hard to say in advance whether they have anything else that's as kind of interesting as this. I mean, this is an original primary source document that wasn't available in the public record until this morning. Um, but they're planning on running some other stuff through the well, week. Usually you don't lead. Do you lead with the most exciting stuff, or do you kind of close with it? Well, I think you maybe it kind of follows a, a, a scoop you know, exciting and then not so cool, but then by the end of the week, you, you, you hit on a, you end on a high note, too. So maybe one more big thing we might be looking for. Maybe at the end of the week. And who knows? Maybe they'll <laughs> just trend up all week. That would be interesting, too. <laughs> that was great. a very interesting, that was a very interesting letter. And, and I agree with you completely and with the Globe's conclusion that it, it's, it's very interesting that Romney did not follow Mr. Stapley's advice. Right. I mean, this this was Stapley goes to great lengths to make it clear that this was sort of personal one to one advice. In fact, to such great lengths that some people online are speculating that Stapley probably didn't write it. It, it looks as if it might have been written by a lawyer, and Delbert Stapley was not. Oh. <laughs> and just but, and just, but yeah, sorry. And just for our listeners that, that that may not be down with church history, it's it's pretty much irrefutable that apostles. Several apostles in the 50s and 60s, including Marky e. Peterson, Ezra Tapp Benson, and Harold B. Lee, were explicitly and vociferously against the civil rights movement. They thought Martin Luther King was evil. They thought that he was a communist. And um, I, I, I'm always not sure how much of it was a race thing and how much of it was an anti-communist thing. Do you guys have a, a feeling about that? I think I mean this letter is is one of the sources that helps make clear that part of it was a race thing. Yeah. There's nothing about communists in this letter, and there are other sources like that. At the same time, we should note that during this period, Hugh B. Brown was in leadership in the LDS Church, and he was an ardent advocate of civil rights. So there was some diversity. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and a, a lot of our listeners won't know that we have a a good friend named uh, Jay Stapley, who is a very prominent founder, uh, one of the primary contributors in the Bloggernacle, he did a post on this. Can anyone tell us what he wrote today? Because I believe this is his grandfather or great-grandfather? Uh, I think possibly his grandfather's cousin. Okay. So whatever whatever that turns out to be. Okay. Um, Stapley wrote a, a post, which you can see at By Common Consent, um, discussing this article, this letter, and talking basically talking about what a great person Delbert Stapley was and the many good things that Stapley, that sort of this, this brother Stapley did that, that have resonated on in, in Jay Stapley's life, which I think is helpful as a kind of personal context for this sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's really easy to demonize these people, but these were, all, you know, in all my readings, these men did a lot of great and wonderful things. So it's important to keep that perspective. Well, and I think it's also important, too, to recognize that um, George Romney was a very, very well-admired and respected leader um, by both political parties when he was governor of Michigan. Well, good. Well, um, well, Jay, thanks for bringing that to our attention. Um, interesting stuff. I'm sure we'll have uh, some more stuff to talk about next week. But let's go ahead and move on to... The meat of today's episode, dealing with the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, we have a lot in store. There's been a lot of activity. 
But I thought, and, and as we talked about this beforehand, we thought it might make sense to just make sure and give our listeners a, a heads up as to, you know, what the Mountain Meadows Massacre really was. And, and the truth is, I know very little about it, but I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit, just a tiny bit from the introduction of a new article that's coming out, or that came out in the end sign. Um, let me just go ahead and start reading it just to give people a little bit of a background. This year marks the 150th anniversary of a tragedy in southern Utah known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Um, this article, which will appear in the September issue of the Ensign, is being published in advance on church websites because of significant public interest. Um, probably referring to a movie that was set to come out this month but now is being postponed. But to give just a little bit of an introduction... Uh, this September marks the 150th anniversary of a terrible episode in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On September 11th, an ominous day, 1857, some 50 to 60 local militiamen in southern Utah, aided by American Indian allies, massacred about 120 immigrants who were traveling by wagon to California. The horrific crime, which spared only 17 children aged 6 and under, occurred in a highland valley called the Mountain Meadows, roughly 35 miles southwest of Cedar City. The victims, most of them from Arkansas, were on their way to California with dreams of a bright future. And it goes on to say, how could members of the church have participated in such a crime? It's probably worth mentioning that uh, many local ward members in whatever ward or stake that might have been at the time, including church leadership, apparently um, were involved in the, um, in the act. And so um, a new press release, a new um, Ensign article, lots to talk about here. Um, let's begin, I guess, by talking about the article itself and the press release. Uh, and I think, Anne, we have you, you tapped for that. Is that right? Yes, sir. That's me. So um, take it away. Well... You know, I've, as I've looked at this article, uh, it's it's a mixed bag. It's on the one hand, hey, and before you analyze it, tell us the, if you can just tell us some of the main gists or the main slants, or is that what you're probably going to do? And I interrupted you. Yeah. Well, the, yes. The article is written by Richard Turley, who is a co-author of a book that will be coming out called "Massacre at Mountain Meadows," along with. Ronald Walker and Glenn Leonard. Uh, Richard Turley is a historian, I think, of no small repute. His uh, the the article is very comprehensive. It's six printed pages in a not not large font, uh, in lots of nice end notes, which are balanced among both positive and negative sources. I mean, they have links. They have notes in here from John D. Lee's Mormonism Unveiled and from his last confession. It's, uh, it's, very, it's very well documented. The article is broken into sections. Um, first, the introduction, and then there's a historical background which puts, tries to put Mountain Meadows in the context of what's going on both in the country and in Utah at the time that the massacre happened, it's, uh, which I think is very important. I think it's, it's easy to look at something as terrible as Mountain Meadows as 
a discrete event that happened in, and, and to focus just on the event itself without looking at the context in which it happened. The context doesn't in any way excuse it, but at least it helps you under, understand what these people could have possibly been thinking. Hey, and tell, tell our listeners who don't know the background what, what some of the dynamics were that led up to such a horrific event. Well, the, the one thing that, um, that comes out most prominently in the context of this is the Utah War, which is portrayed as a fairly bloodless war at this point, at this time in history. U.S. troops were marching toward the Utah Territory. Uh, more troops were expected to follow. They, the local saints really had no idea what was going to happen to them. And, the, and, and so there was a, a, a climate of great fear. There was just great fear. And, and why was the is, government sending an army out to Utah? I'm going to defer to Jay Nelson Seawright on that. Jay, tell me about it. Uh, the basic thing, the, the, um, it, was a, it was an issue re revolving around who was going to be governor of the territory. Brigham Young had been governor for quite a long time, and the, the federal government wanted to replace him. And the federal government understood, and probably to at least some extent in, in an exaggerated way, that Brigham Young and the Mormons were in rebellion against the idea that Brigham Young could be replaced and were refusing to accept any new um, leaders. A couple of different leaders had been sent out and it hadn't worked out. So uh, the, the army was sent to put down the rebellion and replace the governor. Okay, so that was one important dynamic. Uh, what, what about, uh, what, I, I've often heard that that there was rhetoric that was being used by, by maybe some general authorities that was making people feel, make, making Mormons feel almost apocalyptic and, and definitely very paranoid and somewhat militant. It, can anyone talk about that? Is that true? Well, this was also the time of what's called the Mormon Reformation. Tell us about that. Which is a a time where in order to recommit the people to the church, the leadership had started to feel like, well, we're all out here, but people are paying more attention to farming or this and that and the other thing, and they aren't paying attention to the fact that we're at, living in the end times, and they aren't being committed to the church. And, and so as a result, there's a lot of uh, very zealous preaching and a lot of talk that I think sets sets up an idea of us versus them where the chosen people living here at the in the latter days and and I think that that's part of part of the thing that ends up being conflict well and this is also the period the the um, Mormon Reformation is the period when when the idea of blood atonement gets discussed most so there was this idea floating around that when people commit certain sins they, they need to actually be killed in response for that so that's another piece of the puzzle in a sense yeah, what else, can you guys give any small examples of, of the rhetoric that was being used to make people feel concerned or paranoid, or, or is blood atonement enough enough said? <laughs> are, are I'm not sure how much more it gets than that. It's just I mean, a, you know, th 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 there were statements that if you commit certain sins, you, you're, you're, you will have to agree to have your blood shed on the ground and, or else you will never that, achieve forgiveness. That it's an act of charity. In order yeah, to have you know, the person be able to receive salvation, that yeah. Christ's atonement doesn't cover these sins, and so in order to provide uh, 
this act of charity to the person, you have to shed their blood. There, there was a Heber C. Kimball line, and I'm going to get it approximately only, that um, the day will soon come when we will see people who will come on bended knee asking to, to have their throat slit to pay for their sins. Holy moly. And, and but what about like the end of the world or the end of the church or some type of apocalyptic thing? Was there rhetoric about a sec, an imminent second coming or Joseph's coming back? Was there anything that was sort of apocalyptic uh, end of the, the world. Church, the name of the church is the latter church. You know, yeah. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. We're living in the latter days. Joseph said that in this generation, everybody's patriarchal blessing said in this generation the second coming will occur, and everyone understood that to be. You know, they had until about at the very latest in the calculation around around the 1880s. But in the meantime, they thought it was going to be sooner. So the saints thought the, that the that the Christ is going to come again, and that something maybe even catastrophic was going to happen as a lead-up, and that maybe this was, this was the event. Is that yes. possible? Yes. I think that's something that, that throughout the 19th century, basically every negative event the church experienced was interpreted through that frame. Okay. And then tell us about the party, whoever wants to, the party itself, and how their origins also played into this um, paranoia. Well, the Santa party was uh, mostly composed of Arkansans. They, um, it, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I believe that not too long prior to this, one of a very beloved apostle, Parley Pratt, had been uh, ex- had been murdered in Arkansas. Is that true? Yes. Do I have that That's right? right. And why and was why was Parley murdered? Uh, he was murdered by a jealous husband. Of uh, a woman who had left her husband, she'd joined the church and uh, left her husband, and she'd become um, one of his plural wives. Became one of his yes. plural wives. So part of the people took on an extra wife who had been married to someone else. He got jealous mm-hmm. and killed. Part was still married legally. Oh, fact. they were still legally married. Yeah, yeah they were. Oh. It was very hard to get a divorce in those days. So a lot of people yes. really were, even though they were still legally married, they'd been separated. But she ended up becoming a plural wife, and this was the cause of the dispute. Man, this is messy. Yeah. Yes. Well, and and in addition to that, the the and this is something that John Hamer mentioned just in the context of what we're going to talk about later. That one of the things the movie got right was the poverty that was so pervasive there. And this wagon train; these were wealthy. This was a very well supplied train. They had lots of goods. They had lots of stuff. And the people in southern Utah. And the they people in southern of Utah. And they're driving right. through this really impoverished area right. and um, behaving in ways that the saints felt were deliberately uh, vulgar or provocative. Um, the, um, the, the, and in the meantime, the, the church leadership had done a great deal to try to convince the people that they were not to interact with the, with the immigrants. They weren't to sell them anything. They weren't to buy anything from them. They were, they were to be, remain isolated from these wagon trains and to shut them out. Hmm. And so at the same time that this is happening, that they're being told, these people are a threat to us because they, in addition to the army on the way, they had all these they had all these Gentiles crossing their land, and they were—they felt very, very threatened by that. 
also at the same time that this wealthy company is crossing the plains, they're being warned about the immigrants to stay away from them or to to shun them in a way. And it 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 there was it was just a very very tense time. And then it was a very very tense situation. Were, were there were there rumors that these people were from Missouri and that they had had participated in persecution pre- previously? Was there something about that? One of the uh, uh, there was a there is a claim that that's mentioned in the article. I don't. It doesn't seem to be very well documented that one that in the process of some conflict in the town that one of the party uh, claimed that he had the gun that had just that had killed Joseph Smith. Is alleged to have said that, right? Yes. Yeah. The problem with the problem with almost all of those claims are that that these are taken down after the massacre occurs, and so people are justifying why they did it. So we exactly. we don't know we don't know you know the merits of these claims, but what we we don't we don't have is claims that this is happening that are that are being taken down in journals or in newspapers or things like that prior to the to the massacre. We only have the excuses afterwards. Okay. Well, and the other thing that we don't have is is physical evidence. Nobody has mm-hmm. the gun that was allegedly the gun that killed Joseph Smith. Nobody can point to the specific well that the um, Fancher party allegedly poisoned. There isn't even record of any particular, you know, anyone dying from the alleged poisoned well. The, there are a bunch of stories, all from the point of view of the people trying to explain this event, and, and there's nothing material and nothing beforehand to back it up. Right. And real quick, before we talk about actually the what happened, um, so that Ann can talk about the analysis. Sorry, uh, this is for our listeners mostly. But so, did Brigham Young? What what was his involvement? Do we know leading up to the actual murders? Uh, did he know they were coming? Did he give any counsel? What do we know about Brigham Young's knowledge and involvement in the lead up? That's and, the most contentious issue in this whole thing. Okay. Do you want to save that for later, or do we want to talk about that now? I think we could say what we could say about the article is the article goes to great lengths to say that Brigham Young was not involved, or or specifically that he was not involved in this particular incident, although he may have approved of the general idea of doing things like this, of of murdering. Well, if if you look at the letter that he sent, the the letter he sent is quoted in this um, Enzyme article. And in this letter, which he sent, that arrived a little bit too late, it, it was sent out on September 10th, the day before the massacre, and arrived two days after the massacre. And in it, Brigham Young says, um, we must not meddle with the emigration trains until they are first notified to keep away. You must not meddle with them. Um, so, you know, we should, we should le- let these ones go. There are no other trains coming south that we know of. If we let them go, let them go in peace. But, but he says that we have to warn them before we meddle with them. So the objection wasn't to the idea of sort of doing something to the wagon trains, but to the idea of doing something without first warning them. So we know that he knew they were coming, and we know that he... Well, they passed through, they passed through Salt Lake prior to getting okay. down to southern Utah. So he's very aware of the, of the train. And when they're up in Salt Lake, this is where a previous uh, council happens, where Brigham Young calls the Indian allies and tells them that they can have... You know that the, the the immigrant trains are no longer being protected by the Mormons, and that the Indians can have all the cattle. 
So he wishes, there's good evidence that maybe Brigham Young might have wished a little bit of ill on these people for whatever reason. He certainly minimum. wasn't going to go to great lengths to protect them from anything. And, except, you know, for the letter, except for the letter he sent that said, leave them alone or at least give them a chance, right? He said, let them go. We need to, you know, wait and not kill anyone until they've been warned. Okay, warn them first. Okay, so, uh, Anne, I know we're, we're totally stealing um, maybe... No, I like it this way. Okay, okay. This is good. This is good. It's, it's good that it's going back and forth. The, the article, as I said, goes to, a, a, I believe, a, a great, a, does a great job of expressing the historical background that leads up to this. The, it describes the escalating tensions between the immigrants and the, the locals, the, the rumors of the poisoning of the well, and which was probably just the disease that cows got because cows got diseases, duh, and um, which was probably not so commonly known at the time. Uh, the, the, the rhetoric about not about not to have any dealings with the immigrants and that were sent from Salt Lake through through other leaders and the situation in the town once the immigrants arrived um, they they needed goods and they weren't available um, they or they they weren't available to them the it, it says here in the article, the miller charged a whole cow to dry, grind a few dozen bushels of grain, which was just an enormous price. They were extorting these people. And there was just so much tension because you had, all the, you had the immigrants who had things that they needed and the townspeople who didn't have much and were not going to share what they had. And that was just that was the source of a great deal of tension. There were um, efforts made to... Uh, arrest the arrest some members of the party on grounds of drunkenness and it it and those didn't work and eventually the the um the local leaders who decided they were going to teach them a lesson were going to try to get the the local Indians to kill some or all of the men and steal their cattle and that didn't work out quite as they had expected. Um, John, there was, the, the article describes a siege of five days. Um, John, John Hamer, do you... Yeah, so what, what happens at first is that they have the, the first initial attack where the Mormons paint themselves as Indians, and they, ha they have some Indian allies, and they attack the wagon train and cause a, you know, cause a, uh, they uh, uh, think they're going to be able to, whatever, attack, the, take over the wagon train, but in fact the wagon train is wealthy enough and well-armed enough that it's able to circle the wagons and pr produce a defensive perimeter that isn't, not able to be immediately penetrated. And so as a result, the, they're, they're stuck there in that defensive fortification and just outside of regular visual range, the Mormons hold them at siege. So starving them out, kind of. Right. And then what happens afterwards is that the, under a flag of truce, the Mormons take off the uh, Indian paint and come, come forward and tell the party, well, we've talked to the Indians, we know the Indians, we're able to 
protect you from them, but you need to come with us. You need to leave your, your weapons or be completely disarmed. Uh, we'll you know, separate out the men, the women, and the children. And uh, and then after after they're able to convince them to leave the siege, that they'll take them to the the Mormon settlements. Uh, after they march them through the valley, and then the Mormons execute them. So they kill men, women, and children. Everyone children over the age um, of six, over the age. Yeah. Yeah. And is it just gun gun to the head execution style? Do we know? Pretty much. Yeah. Well, in some cases, they didn't have enough guns so i think some people are clubbed yeah they did some they they exhumed some of the bodies a few years ago and the ones that they had exhumed had had their heads crushed from behind Hmm. man so that's just that's brutal yes it's appalling it's appalling it's 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 terrible terrible thing the uh the it's i believe one of the largest it massacres, you know, in, in, not in a in a war situation in the United States. There was one I read about that was a, at a a Union uprising actually in Louisiana, where I live, in the 1930s, where more people were killed. But and I could be misremembering that, but it was uh, it's it's one of the largest massacres to ever take place. The line that, do- that doesn't involve yeah. Indians. So, in, yeah, in other words, right. aside from in- Indian massacres, or yeah, or slaves. So, white on kind of white people killing white people massacres. The line you hear a lot in the media is that it was the um, the most violent religious massacre in the United States before two thousand one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, I mean, Brigham Young must have been terrified once it happened, right? Well, that's just part of the problem, um, you know, in terms of the all of this, these statements that we have about him not being involved ahead of time, is that his response in the aftermath isn't necessarily one that you would, I don't know, expect from somebody who is just, he can't believe that these crazy local militiamen have just massacred all of these people. So he doesn't immediately uh, go go down there and excommunicate people or discipline people in any way. People are continue to be in his good counsels. He continues to promote people like John D. Lee and everybody. And he goes through a, a very long campaign for the rest of his life to obstruct justice and see to it that the people who were the murderers are never brought to justice until so such a time. How long is that time? And tell us a bit about John D. Lee and what his relationship was with Brigham. He was the adopted son of Brigham Young. So there was a sort of personal reason that Brigham might have wanted to protect John D. Lee. But John D. Lee actually was less protected than anyone else who was involved. In the end, you know, in um, 1874, John D. Lee was actually tried and executed in Mountain Meadows for the the massacre. No one else was ever convicted of the crime, in spite of the fact that there were some three dozen people involved. But that's 17 years later. Right. Yeah. It's a long, protracted campaign where the federal government is just desperate to do anything to try to prosecute these crimes, and they're absolutely unable. So even with John D. Lee, they had previously had a different trial, and the none of the witnesses were able to, were, they were all Mormons, so none of them came to the trial or testified about it, and then the all-Mormon jury failed to convict him. 
and then finally, after all of the political pressure, uh, they the the thing switched, and so instantly all of the Mormon witnesses came forward and said that John D. Lee was the guy, he was the man, he was the one who was in charge, and then the all Mormon jury voted to convict him, and so he was executed. Mm. But even it, it corrects me if I'm wrong, but even throughout this entire period, the the implication was that the 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 the, the white the white people's involvement was limited. It was that's, limited to the extent that. Uh, uh, am I wrong about that? That's the story that, that I heard when I was a kid. I mean, that, that was that's the still ch- an idea that's out there. But that was the church's response, and so that was what certainly what they wanted to say at the beginning. But it was very early. It was understood by when um, people would come. So the army marched there. They saw all the bones that were exposed and lying out. The, they they realized that the Paiutes, which were a relatively primitive tribe, I mean, compared to the Cher, you know Cherokees or Dakotas or somebody like that on the the Dakotas on the plains, the Paiutes really didn't have the ability to stage something like this, and that was no very early on and so um, uh, that's why the government was so anxious to get some sort of prosecution yeah you know when the army went out to the mountain meadow site and did that inspection they also took the time to bury the um, people and set up a memorial and this leads into one of my sort of most chilling moments in mormon history is in in may 1861 uh, Brigham Young goes with, with his entourage of about 60 people and visits Mountain Meadows. And they look up at the monument at the battle site. And the monument was po- starting to fall apart. But it had a wooden cross that said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And according to Dudley Levitt, Brigham Young read the verse aloud, but altered it to say, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I have repaid. And then told his people to destroy the monument. Holy moly, what is that? what's the source for that? That's a Dudley Levitt um, reminiscence. He was one of the people in the entourage. So it's a sense that this is like retribution for Joseph's martyrdom. Is that is that what I'm hearing here? Retribution for probably all the bad things that happened to Mormons at the hand of Gentiles. Yeah. So like I was saying, in a way, that there's this us versus them mentality. Gentiles versus Mormons. We've been persecuted. We've been driven away. The army's coming. No more. We're going to close the land off to immigration. We can show that this people will not be driven away. We can cl- if you, you won't even be connected to California anymore. The United States will no longer be connected to California. Wow. And what kept the army from just descending upon us like a, a, a reign of terror? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what the, the Republicans up? wanted to do. Well, that's what who? Say that's again? what the Republican Party wanted to do. So Abraham, to Abraham do Lincoln, his party. Or, they, they, um, we the were platform. one of the twin um, relics, relics of, barbarism. of barbarism. Yeah. So that's where that quote came from. As it was a Republican Party platform, and, then, a, and right, as and as after a, the Civil War, I mean, obviously the Civil War intervened. That that was one of the things that delayed all yeah, of this that's right. prosecution. And then after the Civil War, there was a there was a strain of Republicans that wanted to reconstruct Utah in exactly the same way that the South was being reconstructed. And the, yeah, and okay. There's one argument that says that a lot of the a lot of the political pressure against polygamy was just exactly that an effort to reconstruct Utah. Right. Right. And so, um, wow, 17 years before any justice was done. Was John D. Lee a fall guy? Is that pretty much what everyone has concluded, that he was just the fall guy, scapegoat? Well, I mean, he did it. He, he, was, he was part of the team. He was certainly uh, guilty, but yeah, there I mean, were other people that were innocent. guilty, too. 
that's it. But how did they single him out? How did he get singled out? It was a it was apparently a deal because it changed immediately the the amount of the witnesses and the you know the being having witnesses and the jury they all voted against him, and then um, Lee was not wasn't apparently in on it because as soon as he he realizes that this has happened that's when he writes this enormous confession and he starts explaining everything that's ever happened that's bad in Mormon history. Did he implicate other people too? Oh yes. Everyone he can get his hands on. Only the problem is his um, testimony is is a little bit self-serving. Oh sure. Oh, and he, but he, so, so but he becomes, aired. Oh, go ahead. So it becomes a little bit hard to know, especially when you get closer and closer to Mountain Meadows in his confessions. It becomes a little bit harder to know what's what's true and what's um, John Dealey covering his tracks. But so yeah, he's he's a lot better in in Missouri actually, where he's explaining what happened there. So yeah, exactly. he, so he writes a book sort of airing all the dirty laundry of Mormonism up to Mountain Meadows? Well, up to, yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately he ends up getting executed before he's done. So, I mean, I say unfortunately from the standpoint of history. Even if it's self-serving, you know, I mean, it's, at least it's interesting to have his observations. It's, it's one of the books that is titled Mormonism Unveiled. There are a couple books that people use because of, this was a, this was a famous title because of the Mason, masonry unveiled, and so that people titled it, things under that title. But, but, um, but his you can get, there, there's a wonderful scholarly edition done by Juanita Brooks, that, so that you can tell that one apart from all the others because it's edited by Juanita Brooks. And, uh, and, and so it was published? It has been published, it's, it's, yeah. It's in continuous print. Okay. It, there are several different editions that have existed. Wow. Okay, and back to you Jay, and your analysis. Jay, Jay I want to I ask you about the, uh, the, the Brigham Young statement at the memorial. Yeah. yeah. I, I have read, I don't know where, a conflicting account of that. First of all, that okay. wasn't Brigham Young. It was... Uh, an, an Angus, Angus Cannon, and mm-hmm. that Brooks had that uh, had that data, but she felt that it was not reliable because there was evidence that the memorial existed after the time that they claimed to have destroyed it. And that may sound like nick nick nitpicking. And is this something that either you, Jay, or John there's, have there's heard before? There's a resolution. Before? There is a resolution on this, and in order to get the resolution, you have to read Brooks's biography of John D. Lee. What happened was, after the, the memorial was torn down, a company of California volunteers under the command of one George F. Price rebuilt the monument in May 1864, and then it lasted until 1870 when it was torn down again. Okay. Okay. And when um, someone named Lorenzo Brown saw the monument on 1 July 1864, after it had been rebuilt, someone had already gotten there to vandalize it to write under the Bible verse, remember Hans Mill in Carthage Jail. Yeah, painful. Okay. Well, Amber, before you, before you give us your analysis on the article, how did the church handle um, Mountain Meadows from John D. Lee's execution up until today, you know, prior to a fear of response to the movie coming out or whatever. How has the church handled Mountain Meadows over the past 100, 120, 30 years or whatever? Anyone have a, just to bring us up to speed? Because I, I remember one of my first, you know, one of the first disappointments I remember feeling about the church in seminary was I was thumbing through the seminary manual for, for uh, Doctrine and Covenants in Church History. 
And I remember a significant treatment of Hans Mill, but no treatment of Mountain Meadows. And that didn't, it didn't seem fair to me, but maybe I missed something because people I, I tell me that they learned about Peepstones and Joseph's polygamy when they were two years old. So you, why don't you guys tell us how the church has handled Mountain Meadows up until now so that we can contrast it with how they're handling it now. Anyone want to jump in on that? Well, my under my impression of how they've um, how they've been handling Mountain Meadows was just was to pretend it didn't happen, uh, to write it off as a couple of ro- a renegade renegade Mormons who were punished for what they did, and they were mostly just leading the Indians, and it was just the Indians' fault. Okay, and it probably wasn't until Brooks wrote her book that there was any kind of perception otherwise, at least not publicly acknowledged. And at that point, I think that the policy becomes, haven't we already dealt with this? This was so long ago. Why are we still talking about this? Why does everybody always drag this thing up again? We shouldn't even be talking about this. So this was, for our listeners, this is Juanita Brooks. And about what year was she uh, publishing this this book she wrote? John Hamer? 50s? 50s. Okay. Um, yeah. So right around the time, right around the nineteen fifty, yeah. right right around the time of Fawn Brody was coming out with her book. I think it was four years later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so the church ignored it, tried to say it's old news up until now. Uh, well, actually, well, wasn't there a speech a couple of years ago that Gordon B. Hinckley gave that some people were happy yeah. about? Well, Gordon B. Hinckley, uh, the church helped donate part of the money. And Gordon B. Hinckley gave a speech at the dedication of a new monument on the, at the Mountain Meadows site. So that, that a few years back, is, is one of the things that's certainly a step in, in, in a very good direction. Okay. It was my understanding that a number of the, um, the descendants of the survivors were actually kind of underwhelmed by President Hinckley's speech. I think they expected more of a mea culpa than they got. Well, it was not even lacking a mea culpa. He specifically said, my being here, this monument, all that together should in no way construe in any, to any degree in anybody's mind that this has anything to do with guilt uh, by the, the LDS church. So, so, I mean, it was very categorical, and so obviously that, you can see why they weren't too thrilled by that. The church has always been very careful to never apologize. I, I've been told by some people, and this is something that I can't provide sources in any way, that there, that there may be some kind of legal ramifications to admitting any kind of institutional guilt, and that might be one of the reasons they're quite careful on that. Like a reparations kind of thing. One of the things that is always so frustrating to me about the, the rhetoric that you hear even today about Mountain Meadows is that the Latter-day Saints, if people committed Latter-day Saints will often say, well, you know, nobody's apologized to us for Hans Mill. Nobody's apologized to us for, you know, driving us out of Nauvoo. Nobody's apologized to us for the extermination order. Oops, well, oh, Well, they I'm certainly sorry. did. I mean, yeah. Missouri apologized for that. So exactly. That's, that's exactly. no longer like, on the oops, books. Well, yeah. <laughs> and Illinois po- apologized for Nauvoo, too. Do we know when? When were those apologies? Weren't they relatively recent? Sure. I mean, certainly in our lifetimes. We're on the we're on the twenty. I think we have the twenty fifth anniversary this year or last year of the of the Missouri one and the Indi- Illinois one. I think came a little bit later. Okay. So it's been within the generation. It's been a while. 
Well, and I, I think that's what's, what's so frustrating about this for me is, is that instead that they, instead of just saying, I don't know, the, in the PBS in the PBS broadcast, as I said in the first in the first in our in our first podcast in the PBS broadcast, when Dallin when Dallin Oaks comments that hit, that the fact that our people could do something so terrible is just beyond belief to him, and he's just. It was just dumbfounded that they could do something so terrible. And that was the closest thing I have ever heard to an apology. And was he referring to the murders or the cover-ups? No. He oh, the, mur- the, the murders. murders. That was a the joke. The murders. And because and the problem, again, with with that statement from my, from my standpoint is that he again used the word local leaders. And just the same way that the Sensen article does it, the Sensen the article uses the word local nine times. Because, it, you know, obviously it's not just John D. Lee. We've gotten past that point. We know it's not John D. Lee. But it's still scapegoating, you know? It's these local renegade Mormons. So Well, and there's something strategic in the way the article is written where there's a great deal of history up to the moment of the massacre. And then from that point to the end, everything moves very, very quickly. Because yeah. that's the part where, where Brigham Young's actions become a little murkier. And, and so I think that there's a part of the story that... that um, changes the character of it a little bit that they just didn't want to tell. But isn't there, isn't it, just to play the part of the of the apologist, isn't there a chance that Brigham Young would say, yeah, give him a hard time, maybe take a couple cows, rough him up a bit, but that maybe murder was the, or, or, or a massacre was the farthest thing from his mind, and so what they mean by emphasizing local is the, the massacre part of it? Well, you know, John, I mean, the thing is, if, if Brigham really was, if, if Brigham Young was in a position where he was so deeply upset about this, I would have expected him to be down there investigating it, right? Or at least having one of his deputies down there, have someone down there and figure out who did it and excommunicate them. I mean, maybe you don't turn them over for justice because there is this us versus the Gentiles thing that had, you know, some dimension of reality to it. But at least church justice, wouldn't you expect? Unless, I mean, I, okay, I'm sorry. I'm just playing the role of the apologist again. But, you know, in my mission, some really nasty things happened that I bet my mission president was never really told about. And so, uh, you know, is it possible? deniability. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah, you don't, I, if you don't know what happened, you don't have to explain anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I, honestly, I... I think Brigham probably did want him roughed up a bit. He probably did want him to steal some cows. And he may have felt like, yeah, kill a couple of them, you know, let, make sure that they know who's in charge here. But I really think that this probably, I mean, and I have nothing to go on but my own, my own sensibilities here. Brigham Young was just, you know, you have to be insane to order this kind of thing. Exactly. You have to be insane if you're in charge to order this kind of thing. But, you know, and someone did order it. And, and it is I mean, hind- that's hindsight, too. I mean, our judgment is, okay, this was the worst mistake that the Mormons could have made. This is one of the things that really cost them through, you know, that this was the thing that illustrated to the uh, American society that these people, their theocracy, uh, prevented justice from happening. It led it led to massacres of Americans, and it prevented any you know the people who committed the murders from ever seeing any justice. And that was a that was ended up being a strategically a real problem. So in hindsight, we say, oh, this was a not only an atrocity; it was politically a, a really dumb thing to do. But and leaders leaders throughout 
you know, even modern times seem to not be able to get it through their heads that it's not that that the cover up is 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 just as bad as the crime. Mm-hmm. And I have absolutely no doubt that Brigham participated extensively in the cover up. No doubt about that at all. And and once again, I have no evidence for it. It's like you said, Jay. He didn't want to know. He, I mean, yeah. he wasn't sending Wayne down there. He wasn't doing any investigating because he didn't want to know. Yeah. Now, I'm going to put on my apologist hat for a moment and say that, you know, when people say, how, how could our people have done something like this? You know, the fact of the matter is, people do things like this. You know, this mm-hmm. is a unique event, and the people who did it obviously have to carry guilt for it. We can also say the same of the many slave and Indian massacres that happened in the 19th century in America. Or, you know, take your pick of the recent massacres that you can find on the news the last week. People do these sorts of things, and I think it, it has to inform our view of human nature. But it's it's not somehow distinctively Mormon to kill a bunch of people. <laughs> well, definitely not. Right. There's, there is there is that, that matter of the fall. That, yeah. that it, it, and I'm not a... I'm not a person who thinks that, you know, humanity is utterly depraved, but sometimes people lose track of their boundaries. They, they, lose, they, lose, they lose their sense of, of and possibly, and, and the rhetoric of us versus them making these people the other is, is, is a huge help in dropping those kinds of barriers. Yeah, and to what extent? To what extent is it totally justifiable to think we've been driven out of New York, we've been driven out of Ohio, we've been driven out of Missouri, we've been driven out of of uh, Illinois? I mean, how much of that is just totally our, our prophets been killed? Isn't there a degree to which it is human just to say I, I, we're not going to take this anymore and we're going to stand up and send a message that we're done as a people lying down and and just rolling over? and taking what you're going to dish out? I mean, I think it's comprehensible. I think it's understandable and human to say that. But this is actually kind of one of these stories about why that's a bad idea. Because the people who end up paying the price for all of that are people who had nothing to do with any of it. I mean, these were not people who had driven the church out of New York or Kirtland or Jackson County or Far West or... Nauvoo. These were people who had been living in Arkansas. These were people who who maybe didn't like the Mormons very much, but they they certainly weren't guilty of those crimes, and yet they end up paying the price. You know, Lilburn Boggs died a natural death. Right. Right. I I, I should just throw in here that I I have a buddy in my uh, elders quorum who served a mission in Arkansas, and he said in, in, in the hometown of this party, they actually have a memorial uh, built for them, and he said it, it was a tough town to do missionary work in, as as a, as a Latter Day Saint. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I would guess. Oh man, what a oh, heavy my. what a heavy topic. Well, we have about I, I'd say we've got about ten minutes left before we're going to run out of time for this to fit on a CD. So, and, and any I- final thoughts on on was was this article a step forward for the church? Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Okay, tell us real quickly your reaction overall. Well, I mean, it's a step forward in that it is so comprehensive, and it is so detailed, and it does not blame the Indians, and doesn't reduce the entire incident to two paragraphs. It's 
it's a comprehensive it's a comprehensive treatment. It's an apologetic, comprehensive treatment, but it is comprehensive. Um, I, 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 where I wanted to lead with this was when I when I was the, the timing on this is just really interesting. Um, when the PBS uh, special was on uh, a month ago, the uh, the the me- the message boards and the discussion boards were all abuzz with the length of the treatment of Mountain Meadows, how completely inappropriate it was, or how it, that it was twenty minutes long, or how completely inappropriate it was that it was only twenty minutes long. You couldn't make anybody happy. Um, and I thought at the time, and still think now, that given the movie that's, that John is, John is seeing that he's going to tell us about, given the movie, that 20 minute was time well spent. Yeah. And now it turns out that, you know, this, this article was published apparently just a day or two in advance of when the movie was supposed to be released to, for general release. It's now it, for the second time. It was supposed to be released at the end of April. It was put off until the end of June sometime. I guess it was supposed to be last Friday or maybe last Thursday. And this article was published on the church webpage just days in advance of that. And now the movie has been, the movie September Dawn, has been put off until now the end of August for general release. Multiple postponements like that are always the sign of a good film. (laughs) Pardon? Multiple postponements like that are always the sign of a really excellent film. Well, well, since (laughs) since we've only got about eight minutes left, and I want to get Jane here, too, with with his um, Where Do We Go. So, John, you've you've actually seen the film, September Dawn. Can you give us a five-minute, you know, three- to five-minute review of it? Sure. Yeah, I was uh, lucky enough or unlucky enough to be able to be in the advanced audience of, audience of one of these uh, screenings where they get people in there and decide, can we actually release this stinker? And in this case, I think the answer was a resounding thumbs down. And this was a very, very bad movie. And it's also going to be a very, very offensive movie to Mormons. One of the very, uh, probably the not even just even taking the Mountain Meadows massacre and Brigham Young in there as explicit orders to or, to massacre all the people uh, aside, I think that they've done they do everything in there from you know filming the the contemporary uh, temple endowments in a very I don't know obvious way so they're showing that off and that kind of thing and, and so I think that it's going to just be horribly offensive. So to, they're showing the temple ceremony from the late 1800s in this movie, right? Oh, wonderful, yes. wonderful. Yeah, so it's it's absolutely, you know, so in that way it's just not anything that anybody's going to want to see. But on the on the other hand, um it's also it well it's also a terrible movie from a movie standpoint. Hollywood isn't ever very good at 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 making movies historically accurate, but it's also not a good movie, which is probably fortunate uh cuz it means it won't probably last too long. But <laughs> I, it, it also it also just does a terrible job of making anything believable. So, both the two societies in this case, the the Fancher party, the immigrants, are unbelievable. I mean, they are of course victims. They didn't deserve 
to be killed. But in the movie, they they all they do is have Protestant church services. They've had they've had five church services by the time they're massacred. And the same thing, the Mormons are are just insane lunatics, and their society is not believable in this movie. So I don't think that in in the end, my assessment of this movie is that just like a lot of over-the-top anti-Mormon stuff, it isn't actually going to be a negative thing for you know the LDS Church because nobody's people or the bulk of people going into this aren't going to go away thinking, you know, believing what it is. And in fact, a, a bunch of the people may well, just like always happens, say, I'm going to find out the truth about this. They find out the truth and they find out that, you know, Mormons aren't crazy lunatics like this and then they may, may well convert. So, I guess blackwashing history has a blowback just like whitewashing history does, huh? But I would also, but I would say counterpoint that I also don't think that the Ensign article is helpful to the LDS church. So I think it because I don't think it's helpful. I think that in the end, you know, honesty is the best policy with these things, and I think that it overreaches. It's apologetic in all kinds of ways, and in the end, it starts to scapegoat again with all this local leaders, local leaders stuff. And I just don't think that, again, that that's that that's helpful. Hmm. Well, and I guess I, I guess it's, it, the way I see it as helpful is is in contrast to what we've had before. And yeah, yeah. In contrast, not... to, in contrast to, especially given the audience of this the believing Latter-day Saints, who may not know much about Mountain Meadows at all. Yeah. Sure, I guess I'm thinking about it from, when I'm looking at this, my involvement here is from the, looking from it outside the LDS Church's perspective. Right. So, Jay, what do you think? If this were, uh, you know, if this article were published in a historical journal, I'd be very, very much less happy with it. But it's being published in the Enzyme. I mean, this is being published in a faith-promoting official publication of the church. And as that goes, I, I think it's just wonderful. I mean, it's a huge step forward from when I was a kid, not that many years ago, being told that this was done by Native Americans. So I, I think it's a good step. Hmm. Well, it's like the, back, the backstop, and this is something that, that I actually kind of picked up over the last couple, of, the backstop for any kind of discussion of this by when people find out this information and want to talk about it in a sincere manner it, the backstop has always been, at least at the local level, anti-Mormon lies. That it, that that's, that that's how this is presented. That's just anti-Mormon lies. It was just a couple of renegade leaders and the Indians. The church had nothing to do with this. And so for the church to publish something like this, now you, you can't say that anymore. Right. You can't say that anymore. Right. And that's, and that's a big step forward. Sure. Well, Jay, uh, you know, how do we how do we make sense of this? And you know, do you have any thoughts on where we can go from here uh, as Mormons and as non-Mormons and as you know mm-hmm. victims of of this history in in a sense? Or maybe we're somehow posthumously uh, complicit. But tell us where we go from here. Well, I think I mean speaking here as a Mormon and as a believing Mormon, I think this is something. I, I don't think I'd be comfortable calling us victims or complicit, but we are carriers of this history. And I think that I can see a lot of ways that we might want to react to this. An easy one is to say that it has nothing to do with us. But I think that that's not good enough. If we want to take credit for the great things that our pioneer ancestors have done, you know, crossing the plains, building Salt Lake, if we want to take credit for the spirituality of Joseph Smith, the practicality of Brigham Young, the visionary nature of Wilford Woodruff, we have to accept the other part as part of our heritage, too. 
Now, obviously, no one alive is guilty of these murders, but they are a part of our history, and they deserve to be remembered. And the lessons that there might be from this deserve to be integrated into our lives. My wife and I have, have a yearly thing that we do to help us remember this event and remember that our community did this. We, we on, on September 11th, after we finish dinner, we, we have a large candle that we light up, and we light it just as a sort of memorial every year for the people who, who our Mormon ancestors killed back 150 years ago. And for me, that is helpful in terms of remembering the consequences that can happen when our, when our loyalties and our, our faith lead us out of bounds. I think that that's something that that we need to watch against. We're human and we make mistakes. And if we're not careful, those mistakes can go way, way out of bounds. It happens. It just happens. And this is one of those instances. And this one is one that we own. I think if we try to own that and deal with it and, and make that a part of our history and who we are, it can teach us, you know, ways of avoiding things like it in the future. Yeah. That's that's beautiful, Jay. Did you guys do that before September 11, 2001, or after? Uh, n- no, we didn't. Um, I didn't actually know anything much about this as long ago as 2001. <laughs> right. But um, the, the the candle obviously can have the double meaning given those other events. But the, the frankly, the, the September 11th attacks in New York are are a little further from our lives than this because we don't know anyone who died in New York or in Washington DC in those attacks we aren't from the culture that perpetrated them you know those those are those are news events but they aren't you know in in some way they aren't our family and this this I think we have to understand is this is family yeah yeah I really like that idea that um you know when you when you pick up the stick of history you pick up both sides of the stick, and if you're going to pick it up, you got to pick up the bad along with the good. Um, but uh, not to cut anyone off, but we actually are reaching the end of the show, so uh, I just want to thank you all for coming on. Uh, we, we planned a, a couple rants for the end or, or some closing remarks, so let's just go ahead and throw it out. Uh, John Hammer, do you have one you want to leave with us? Um, yeah. I was just working today on producing our journal for the John Whitmer Historical Association, and included in that is a, a essay by a uh, recently retired Community of Christ prophet, Grant McMurray, uh, on the topic of being honest about history, and, and I just wanted to uh, say what he wrote, because I thought it was pretty moving. So he wrote, I have been a tireless advocate for the understanding, for understanding the importance of our history. I believe that if we fail to do that, uh, it is at our peril. Where we have failed over the years is when we've confused our history with our theology. And that means a faith crisis is awaiting us in someone's attic, only an archival document away. Our history is rich and profound, and it is a story of imperfect people bumbling their way through life, trying to be faithful, yearning for the truth, just like us. So, well, That's a great quote. Sometime we'll have to talk about how well that served the, the reorganized church to have that level of candor, but... But that certainly is uh, something to aspire to. Um, uh, Jay, you have a thought for us? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I think I'm about ranted out for the evening. Okay, no problem. And Actually, uh, yes, I do. And this is um, an, sort of an off-topic rant. When John talked about the, the siege, John, John Hamer talked about the siege and the circling of the wagons, it reminded me of a book I read uh, on the way up uh, to where I'm vacationing this week, which was, Carolyn Pearson's book, uh, No More Goodbyes. 
circling the wagons around our gay love, gay loved ones. And I just, it was a wonderful book full of beautiful and uplifting and hopeful stories. And I, I really liked that metaphor of circling the wagons as a form of protection for, for people who others are trying to put outside the circle of circling them in. And it, it was a lovely thought to have in contrast to what happened to the Fancher party when they circled their wagons. Well, I highly recommend the book. All right. Highly recommend the book. Thank you. Thank you, Ann. Well, thank, uh, thank you, Jay Nelson Seawright. Uh, thanks for coming on. John uh, Hamer, we want to thank you. And, of course, our wonderful Ann Porter. Thank you all for coming on Mormon Matters. You guys have been brilliant. Thanks, John. It was wonderful. A lot I of had fun. a lot of thanks, fun, John. Thanks. Good. And uh, for the rest of you, please uh, visit us at mormonmatters.org. Please feel free to either leave us uh, some blog comments or send us some email at mormonmatters at gmail.com. Maybe next show we'll start reading some of our listener feedback. But we really appreciate you tuning in. Please tell your friends about us. You can subscribe to Mormon Matters through iTunes by searching on Mormon, the Mormon word for podcast and then subscribing. We now have a button up on the mormonmatters.org uh, webpage at the top right where you can just click on it. And if you have iTunes installed, you can subscribe. So please do subscribe to us uh, and check us out soon. Thanks again to our um, panelists and also to our listeners. And we look forward to talking to you all again very soon. Take care. Today's music has been brought to you by Sky Pixton. You can find Sky Pixton's music at skypixton.com. That's S-K-Y-E-P-I-X-T-O-N.com. Thanks a lot, Sky. I pray.